All right. Well, welcome everyone to the 23rd Fireside Chat with Tom Campbell. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Justin, for, for bringing this to us. Uh, Tom, the questions today have to do with virtual reality, the future video games, a question from a mathematician on probabilities, also with previous life experience packets and accessing uh, alternate realities and experiences as a child accessing realities. Let's start with, um, I know, Tom, you said recently that you read an article, um, I think it was The Case for Reality, a Dr. Donald Hoffman, um, University of... Ah, Case Against Reality, that's it. Dr. Donald Hoffman, he's a cognitive scientist at the University of California, Irvine, has, has made a statement that's quite similar to yours, and it's interesting because of his field. Um, he has stated that, uh, you know, what quantum mechanics tells us is that we have to question the very notion of physical things. And there are a lot of comments on that article on Facebook that I've hosted. I was wondering if you could um, expand on that and explain it a little further. Yeah, it was a very uh, interesting article in that he came to pretty much the exact same conclusions I do about the nature of reality, although he didn't come to the big picture. He didn't see it as you know, uh, a reality based on a consciousness system and information system and so on. He didn't get into that sort of detail. He basically said that his study and research in um, neurophysiology led him to the conclusion, and he didn't really talk so much about it as a hypothesis as he did a conclusion. You know, this is what my science told me. And uh, he made some very bold statements, one of which uh, I particularly like because it's, of course, the same thing that I have said over and over again for years. And that is, when, as he was explaining it to people, he says there is no brain. You know? The brain is just a metaphor, just a symbol, you know. He didn't say it's a virtual brain because he wasn't, you know, connect, making a connection to virtual reality. He just says that they're metaphors. They are symbols. And it's not a real thing. He said what's real is experience. That's the only thing that's real is our individual experience. And he didn't really have a model to explain how that would work or, you know, why reality is like that or, you know, how, how did it get that way? That wasn't there, but he did, from his research, realize, without using the word, that this is a virtual reality, and that the physical reality is just information. Well, he didn't say that, symbols and metaphors, because that's how we see information. That's how we information we see as language and data, and we interpret that, that language, that data, in terms of symbols and metaphors. So when he said it's all just symbols and metaphors, that's a way of saying it's all just information, although he didn't really make that connection. That's, that's, the, that's the result. So it's just another one of those cases where somebody studying from a totally different direction, from another discipline altogether, comes to the same conclusions. And again, this wasn't uh, his opinion. He said this is what his research, and he had done this research. Well, he just wasn't a new guy in the field. I think he said he'd been researching this for, I don't know, you know, 30 years or something like that. It was a long time. So he's somebody who's really been around and been studying this for, for some time, a senior, a senior person in the field. And uh, he feels that uh, this isn't just theory, it's fact. That's what his research tells him so. I really am pleased to hear those kinds of things because that's just somebody else corroborating, you know, the same results that that uh, I get to. So evidently, if you are studying neuroscience and you don't uh, you don't kind of have beliefs that uh, inform you, but rather you just let the results of your research inform you, then you end up at the same conclusion as my big toe about the nature of reality. Tom, could you comment a little bit uh, to the person who was confused about there was no time when no observers of the universe existed, um, and, a, and a second after the Big Bang, there was someone observing it. Can you 
Sure, kind I can of talk about that. that was talk about that a little. Yeah. That was going okay. on on YouTube, I believe, a conversation. And it's a lot of people fall into the same trap. Uh, when they hear about a virtual reality, and that if there's no observer, then the reality isn't really, uh, uh, we say, uh, it's not rendered. Okay, Then they immediately have this idea that it's the observer that creates the reality. Now, they're thinking it's the observer that creates a physical reality. And that's just wrong. You see, there is no physical reality. That's what's wrong with that with that problem. It's not that the observer creates a physical reality. There is no physical reality. An observer is getting a data stream from the server and it interprets that data stream as this reality. When you look away, if you're not observing, then you're not getting anything about what you're not observing in your data stream. So right now I'm not looking at the back of my room. Well, maybe I can because I got a photograph up there in front of me and I can see behind me. But uh, let's say I'm not looking what's outside of my home. And um, that doesn't mean that there's a big void out there, you know, just a black void. When I open my door, you know, I fall into a void because I'm not looking at it. The observer doesn't create reality. The observer gets a data stream and interprets that data stream as this reality. Just like playing World of Warcraft, when you get that data stream from the World of Warcraft computer server, you don't create the World of Warcraft reality. You simply interpret all those little dots of light on your monitor to be that reality. You see, there really is no World of Warcraft reality with elves running around in it and trees growing and animals and monsters and rocks. That doesn't really exist. It's just information. And you don't create that world by viewing it. All right. And the way we get the confusion is that in the double slit experiment, you know, it's, it's often said the observer makes the wave function collapse to a physical result. And then we get this idea that observers are making, um, you know, the wave function collapse to our physical reality. Well, that's not really what's going on. That's a, that's a misunderstanding. What's going on is that you need, the reason that we need an observer, the reason that, a, that an observer is important, if there is no observer, if there is no consciousness observing, then there is no need for the, for the, um, for the computer to send any data out to do anything. You see, there is no reality defined. You don't have a double slit experiment unless consciousness is involved. Double slit experiments don't just, you know, make themselves. A conscious person has to think of the experiment, has to build the equipment, has to put the equipment together, has to tune it, and has to get the results and then look at the results. If you don't have a consciousness involved, then the whole thing's not defined. The double slit experiment doesn't just define itself into existence. That's not how it works. It requires a consciousness to do it, to think of it, to, to implement it, and to look at the results. And when it looks at the results, it's posing a question. It says, if I, you know, don't record data at these slits, then what happens? What will be my result on the screen? It asks a question. When it asks a question, and it's in this virtual reality, then the computer, the server, Okay, and our virtual reality is obligated to send it some sort of a result because it's making a measurement. You can't just make a measurement and, again, find a black spot in front of you, the void, you know, because the system doesn't want to talk to you right now. You're going to get an answer back. You have to get an answer back. You're making a measurement. It's a virtual reality. Then what's the result of the measurement? Well, that's information in your data stream that defines the result of that measurement. And because... It has to be consistent for all people, a consistent reality, and anybody else makes that measurement, you're going to get that result. That doesn't mean you're creating physical reality. Physical reality doesn't exist. You're simply asking a question and getting an answer. Question is in the form of a measurement. That's the question. Okay, so now this little, uh, this little thing that went on in the, in the, uh, in the Q&A part of uh, YouTube was that well, how did the universe get started? Because there was nobody there to witness it. And if there wasn't an observer, then it couldn't exist. See, that's just 
misunderstanding. Observers don't create physical reality. There is no physical reality to create. At that point, with the Big Bang, it was just all on the computer. It's a simulation. The consciousness system started a simulation. It had a rule set. It had initial conditions. It pushed a run button, and the simulation started to run. That's all. So was a consciousness involved? Yes, the larger consciousness system who built the simulation and came up with the rule set and the initial conditions. That consciousness was involved, and it was running the simulation, which then, you know, created by evolution, by evolving in the computer, the simulation, it created our universe. Our universe doesn't really exist any more than the World of Warcraft universe exists. Ones and zeros in a computer, you see? So it's not like, well, there had to be an observer watching the, you know, watching the Big Bang bang. Otherwise, it couldn't have banged because there would be nobody there to create the physical reality. You see how, you see how people get that confused? They, they have the sense that physical reality is created by observers. There is no physical reality. And the observer is important because without a question, without a measurement, then there is no result. You know, so it takes a consciousness to make a measurement, to ask a question, get a result. It's the same with your elf. If your elf does nothing, nothing happens. If your elf goes out and picks up a rock, then the computer has to show you what's under the rock. If your elf jumps in the water, then if there's anything in that water, like fish or anything else, then bubbles, whatever, the computer has to show you the fish and show you the bubbles, you see? So when you make a measurement, then the computer has to tell you what's there. So that's the way it works. So the whole thing is just a misunderstanding. The fellow who kept saying, yeah, but, you know, there was nobody to, to view the Big Bang. That's because part of his mind was in materialism. He thought there is a physical universe, and somehow he thinks that people were saying that that physical universe is created by observers. That's not what's going on. That's a misunderstanding of the of the way it works. So that's all going on there. So it's just well, and I've had that, that misunderstanding is common. You know, it's not just this guy. There's been lots and lots of people get into that same thing, and that's because we are habituated to think in terms of physical reality being fundamental. So if it has if it comes in because of observers, then somehow observers are creating this fundamental physical reality, and we think about that and we say nonsense. That just doesn't make any sense. Well, of course, it doesn't make any sense. There is no physical reality, and uh, it doesn't work that way. Just well, that's dated great, individuals. Yeah. I'm going to post that, uh, that the answers or the discussion on that will be out, so hopefully that'll help. Um, I think we should start with a couple of questions that were missed last time, and that was uh, questions from Jesse. Uh, Jesse asks, is, is humanity going into a computer transhuman singularity matrix? Well, he didn't define that, but I can take a guess at maybe what that means. Um, you know, there are transhumanists uh, who are trying very hard to look ahead into the future about where we might go. You know, what's the, what's the future like for humanity? And it's a very good thing to do because it's nice to kind of uncover and think about problems before you're in the middle of them, you know, and before it's too late to do anything about them. So their intentions are really good, and the ideas that they have uh, are uh, kind of in the right direction, but they don't have a big understanding of reality. They don't understand the big picture. They don't see it as virtual. They think it's physical. They don't see the, the, the continuity that we have through consciousness. Um, there's just so much of the fundamental reality that they don't understand that they tend to get wound up around problems that really aren't all that significant. They're uh, kind of asking the wrong questions, if you will, often. And I just, you know, I kind of lay that at the feet of the transhumanists in general. So, um, you know, there's lots of questions in that area about can we conquer death? Let's say we get to the point that uh, medicine can cure all ailments and everybody can live infinitely long or as long as they want to. You know, there is no death anymore. And what's that going to be like? And then we have cyborgs where the humans and the machines kind of 
you know, form mixed entities, some of which is, you know, mechanical some, or electrical, some of which is, uh, is human. And they work through these, uh, well, welcome, Tolson. I see you've got your, your video up. Good. Uh, anyway, they, uh, that's kind of the transhumanist group. And um, I'm not sure what he means by the singularity. A singularity is usually something that, uh, that uh, is a unique event that changes everything. And that could be any number of things. So I'm not sure what he has in mind there. But in general, um, I think they're good people working on problems that need to be worked. Their understanding is just not very broad. So in that area, when you're trying to look into the future, a very broad understanding of the nature of reality is very important. Otherwise, you're constantly chasing you know, down rabbit holes that really uh, aren't particularly meaningful in the big picture. Okay, Jesse also asks, I would like Tom to comment on the binary nature of reality and its seemingly paradoxical truths, such as competition versus cooperation, predator versus prey, collective wills versus individual will. Um, My mind wants to choose one understanding over another, but it seems both are true. Tom supports love over fear and cooperation over competition, and collectives, collectives will or collective will over an individual's. But the reality is I'm an individual and I don't often want crazy collective um, telling me how to live my life. I feel like I'm living in a society that is continually increasing rules and restrictions and increasing rules and restricting common sense and free will. Okay. Um, The reason that he feels that way, that his uh, free will and... and, uh his choices are being constrained in his society isn't because the society is becoming more collective. It's because the society is becoming more fearful. It's the fear that creates those issues, not the cooperation or working together. People, particularly in uh, Western culture, particularly uh, those coming from a capitalist viewpoint, have this fear of the collective in that, the collective is a, is a machine that tells everybody else what to do, when they can do it, and how to do it. It's the, um, you know, it's the, the experiments that Karl Marx, uh, you know, wanted to have the, uh, you know, the people own everything. Well, the people can't really own everything. Somebody has to run it, and somebody makes decisions. And those people that run it and make decisions become the people who are in charge, and everybody else becomes the people who do what they're told. And that doesn't work out very well. That is a collective based on fear. Fear Fear-based collectives will end up like that. They will decrease a person's individual freedom. But it's the fear-based that's creating that. It's not the collective. You see, now if if you have a group that is cooperating, not because they're forced to cooperate, because they want to cooperate. You have a group that is love based, not fear based. Now, what that means is that instead of thinking about what can I get and how can I keep it and how much, you know, how much can I get, they're thinking about how can I contribute? How can I help? What can I do for you? You see? So if you have love-based people thinking about other, then if they are cooperative in some kind of a collective cooperative interaction, then the individual has more personal freedom. It has a greater decision space, more choices, more things that they can do. They're much freer and much more able to express themselves as individuals than they would ever be in any fear-based culture, whether it be individualistic or collective. It's the fear-based is what causes the problem, not whether it's individual or collective. In a collective love-based culture, You have maximum individual freedom, maximum choice. People are more able to do whatever it is they want and have fewer restrictions and fewer things that they have to do than any other form of interaction. So it's just a a confusion. Because we come from a fear-based mindset, 
our whole existence is in our own fear-based culture, our own fear-based, you know, we're individuals and we're fear-based. It's the fear, the ego, the belief that drives us and drives our choices. That's how we see the world. We see the world through fear. And when we think of a collective, we think of that collective as being fear-based. Somebody in charge, whoever's in charge, tells us what to do, you know. So everybody's kind of the, you know, the, the, the uh, peasant, except for the people in charge. And those people's lives are regulated by those in charge. Well, yes, that's the way a fear-based collective would work. And we can't imagine any other kind of situation. A love-based collective or even a love-based individualism. We can't imagine it. We have no idea what that might be like, and therefore we think it probably doesn't exist because we've never experienced it. And that's kind of the problem. With, it's, you know, Jesse was expressing that fear. This collective thing's awful. You know, it's when people tell you what you have to do and where you have to go and what kind of job you have to have and you know when you have to go to work and et cetera, et cetera. But that uh, has nothing to do with whether it's collective or individualistic. That has only to do with whether it's based in fear or not. So you have an individualistic culture based on fear, and you just have a bunch of people who are each trying to grab everything that they can grab, and whoever floats to the top has power, and whoever doesn't, doesn't. And it's all individual-based. It's how much everybody can grab. Well, that's not exactly a, a wonderful place to be either. That's the way we in the West live in cultures that uh, emulate that ethic to a large degree. Um, so any case, that's his, that's the problem he's having. He's having a fear-based viewpoint of a collective culture that worries him. He knows that his individualistic culture that is now is restrictive, causes all kinds of problems, is difficult to get along in and people are full of greed and, and uh, self-centeredness and that kind of thing. But at least there's nobody telling him what to do. See, and in a collective, somebody would be telling him what to do. That's not what collective means. Collective just means you cooperate. If there's something you can see to do that would be helpful, you want to do it. It's not that somebody has to make you do it. You want to do it. And if it's not something that you want to do, then you'll find some other way to help and be part of the solution. And you'll do that. That's why you have a lot more individualistic freedom in a love-based uh, collective that's cooperative. I know, hard for people to understand. They say, yeah, 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 but they don't believe it because all of their, all of their experience is in a fear-based system and they can't make that leap to see that in a, in a collective based on cooperation and caring for other, everybody optimizes their own personal individual self. Thanks, Tom. I hope that answered that, your questions, uh, Jesse. The next question comes from Travis from the MBT Forum. Over the next 12 months, we're going to see the release of uh, three affordable and very high-quality virtual reality headsets for the home and the average consumer, fully immersed in visual sound, some touch feedback for interaction, etc. We're stepping into a new territory of home virtual reality and augmented reality. It seems highly possible that MBT will become even more easily explained to future users of home virtual reality as people become immersed in uh, man-made virtual reality games and programs. My question for Tom, over the next five years, we're going to see many more left-brain thinkers immersing themselves into these digital worlds. Do you have any predictions as to the possible effects these systems could have on the way we start to perceive this world? Do you think this technology could aid or hinder the growth of human consciousness and possibilities of technology causing paranormal experiences? It seems to me that as people become open to logging into a digital system that simulates visual and audio input, that they will become more and more open to receiving information from the larger consciousness system. What are your thoughts on this issue? And do you have any predictions of any paranormal possibilities this technology might create? Well, uh, first of all, I think it's terrific where we're going with virtual reality. And yes, it's going to make a, a big difference because it's going to make it so much easier for people to quote unquote, get it, you know, once they experience it, it'll be a lot easier to understand. And one of the, the best things I see out on the immediate horizon is this June, I guess, or July, sometime mid to late summer, there is a new 
a virtual reality game coming online called No Man's Sky. And this is notable because it, it programs okay, in, in a way that is very much the way our reality is programmed. It's, it's called uh, procedural programming. And what that means is you don't have programmers you know, specifying every tree and every rock and every critter and every blade of grass in, in code. Everything is generated as a user needs it. So as a user looks someplace, then a data stream is sent to that user that shows him what's there. And as he looks away, that data stream, of course, disappears. It changes. It shows him what, what is someplace else. And the way it shows him isn't that that stuff is all calculated and just sitting there like you think of when you point your camera here or point your, your camera there, you get different scenes. It's that it's being calculated as he looks. So as he looks, the scene that he sees is being calculated. And as he looks away, that's dropped. In other words, that reality doesn't really exist except as data streams to individual users. You see how how uh, similar that is to what we talk about. So now these people who argue about, well, the Big Bang couldn't happen because there wasn't any observer, you know, suddenly they'll be able to get it. They'll be able to see how this reality works because here you're going to have a major virtual reality program coming online that works just like that. So there is no world that programmers programmed. All they did is program kind of uh, objects, if you will, in terms of object-oriented uh, coding. And these objects then can take any number of billions of configurations based on random choices. So this, this particular um, virtual reality has quintillion number of planets. All the planets are of a size sort of like our Earth, maybe a little smaller, I don't know. They're big planets. And you can explore them. So there's about as many planets in this in this simulation as there are in our universe. See, they're kind of comparable. They're kind of big things. Now, how could somebody simulate all of that? There's not that much memory. Well, it's not. It all just calculates on the fly as it's needed. So if there are a bunch of these planets that nobody ever goes to, then they'll never be calculated. They're just potential in the computer. You see, that's just the way our reality works. Things you don't look at are just potential in our computer. You look at them, you get a data stream. You look away, you don't get a data stream. So anyway, I think that will be fantastic because this one is just the first of these procedural generated. Uh, this is the first one that's really kind of a big, um, a really big uh, scope that it has. And, uh, you know, it, it's a time function. As time goes by, creatures change, evolution happens. What, what is potential on that planet changes with it. Once you go there and look at it, ah, now the random numbers that generated that particular view are saved. And if you, anybody else goes back there and looks, you get that same thing. So see, once you see it, that brings it into the reality, and it's always there if anybody else looks. But none of it is programmed. So if you look at something and then 10 years later, you come back and look again, that same scene gets recalculated for you. But it's not like that scene's been programmed. And all you have to do to recalculate it is save the basic prototypes, which are small, and save the random number sequences that you use to generate it. So for a handful of numbers, you can generate a whole universe, a whole planet, just in a handful of numbers. You see, very powerful process, and that's the, that is very, very similar to what we have. So I'm thinking that, all right, this thing's coming out this summer. Give everybody else in that business is going to be copying. This is kind of a, a new big deal for this kind of, this procedural program has been around for five or six years, but this is the first big scope thing that's come out with it. Everybody else will be copying this. So in the next decade, there will be probably hundreds of these kinds of programs out in all sorts of fields, not only as an exploration game, but, you know, things of, of um, teaching, ways of teaching, ways of communicating, all the kinds of things, you know, virtual reality does, you know, the training the pilots, the, uh, um, you know, helping us uh, 
understand complex systems, that kind of thing. So this kind of programming is going to is going to spread quickly. Why? Because it is so efficient. It doesn't take huge number crunchers. It doesn't take huge amounts of memory. It doesn't take tens of thousands of programmers to program a quintillion number of large planets. This whole thing was done by four people on desktop computers, <laughs> you see? And it's a quintillion planets. Four people, desktop computers, a few years. You see how efficient it is. So that's why other people are going to copy it, because you can do a magnificent, detailed... And these planets aren't simple. There's detail, very detailed. And uh, anyway, so I'm, all, I'm excited about this. You can probably tell. Uh, this is going to be in a decade after there's hundreds of these kinds of programs going the idea, when I tell somebody, you know, reality is just in your data stream. Nothing's, you know, it really doesn't exist at all. There is no physical reality. It's just our data in the data stream. And people will say, well, sure. That's the way all these virtual realities work. You know, that's uh, natural. So the people that grow up with these won't hear me say that thing about, well, you know, it's only when you look, that, you know, that, that you get that information. They won't have the, ah, it doesn't make any sense. You mean when I turn my head, everything disappears? And it's like, no, that's not it. See, in a decade, it'll, all that understanding will be completely obvious and, and uh, trivial. Won't even be a stretch of anybody's imagination to get their arms around what I've been talking about in terms of virtual reality. It will be as common as brushing your teeth. It just isn't going to be a, a challenge. So that means that this idea of a virtual reality is going to become easy to talk about, easy to describe, and easy to understand, particularly for the younger people coming up who will kind of cut their teeth on this kind of a reality frame. And, you know, that's what we've been doing all along. You know, it wasn't that the guys in, that uh, invented quantum mechanics just didn't have what it took to see virtual reality. Virtual reality just wasn't a concept for them. It wasn't in their worldview. They couldn't say, oh, look, this is this looks like a virtual reality here because that those words, virtual reality, didn't mean anything in the 1920s. So it was just beyond their concepts. So what we're doing now is that our computing is starting to fill in the gaps to where people can more easily see what it means when we talk about virtual reality and how efficient it is and how really easy it is to compute. It doesn't take um, you know, zillions of you know, terabytes of, of memory and you know, teams and teams of programmers. And that's, that's kind of the old method that's going away. Too expensive, costs too much, takes too long. There are newer ways to get things that are much, much better, that are much cheaper and simpler and faster. And they're starting to look more and more like the way the larger consciousness system does this reality. Why is that? Because our reality is, has been evolved to be efficient. Evolution makes things efficient. Things evolve to be efficient within their environment. Well, if it's a computing environment, then they evolve to be faster, less memory, you know, more efficient. So as we do the same thing, then we're going to end up looking very much like the larger consciousness system, the way we do things, because efficient in computing is the same all over. So if us doing virtual realities gets more and more efficient, we're going to look more and more like the larger consciousness system in the way that works. So I'm seeing in a decade what takes me, you know, hours and hours to try to tell people, and most of them walk away without really getting it anyway is going to be a trivial thing. That'll all be done. People will come in the room already understanding how virtual reality works. And the idea that we're living in virtual reality will be an easy sell. It's not going to be, well, that's the dumbest idea I ever heard. That's impossible. Look, see, this hard stuff here, I can't be a virtual reality. And they will, they will be able to understand. So, yes, I'm enthusiastic about what computers, computer science is bringing to us because it's just going to make everything that I've been saying for the last 15 years seem obvious and understandable, a lot more obvious and understandable. So yay, yay team. I, I think that's, that's great. 
But, you know, it was inevitable it would work out this way because as we get more efficient, we approximate, you know, the efficient way to do business. So they're going to start, you know, our systems and their systems are going to start looking more similar to each other. And we finally taking big steps in that in that direction. Now, what this has to do with people um, having paranormal experiences, the only connection there is once people see a bigger picture and can understand it kind of intuitively, rather than they hear the words, but can't really intuitively get their arms around it. They can't really get it down at a being level because it's just too far outside of what they know in their reality. You see, once people kind of accept this bigger reality, then they can accept things that are strange, that aren't physical, that are informational. Suddenly, that's not like an impossible thing anymore. So once that becomes not that big a deal, it's not one of those crazy things that, you know, only people who are, you know, have weak minds, you know, have ever experienced. It's going to be something that's much more natural. And at that case, yes, there'll be a whole lot more experiences of the non-physical because there'll be a lot more acceptance of those kinds of experiences. And there'll be a lot more understanding about how those experiences might come about. So I think we are in the next decade going to begin to shake off this um, love affair with, with materialism. I think between science telling us, you know, materialism doesn't work anymore and the computer folks showing us what virtual reality looks like, that uh, this, this vice that materialism has us in, we can't think any other way. Whether we call ourselves materialists or not, we're inculcated with beliefs that are materialist-based because that's our culture. I see that starting to dissipate over even just the next decade. Major, major changes are coming in that in that era so that gives me hope that it might not take another thousand years before we get this you know, get this uh, I, these ideas out there and understood you know maybe it'll only be decades because i'm seeing that right ahead of us is some is a major uh a major help for me in trying to to have this make sense to other people i probably overkilled that but uh, i'm kind of excited about it because it's uh it's really going to help out a lot. Someone had a question that is, or a comment that they would like to make on this topic. Yeah, I was just going to, because you're on this topic, on the topic of people starting to become familiar and acquainted with the idea that reality is virtual. I came across this book the other day, well, a couple months ago on Amazon. And Tom, you may be aware of it, but it's called uh, The Universe is Virtual. And uh, Alexander Marchand, I think is how you pronounce it, wrote it. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's nonfiction, obviously, but it's, it's a graphic book, uh, and it's yeah. got illustrations, and uh, it's even got a little picture of you next to Brian Whitworth in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, uh huh. Yeah, that guy got in touch with me about a year ago, and he said, "I'm doing a comic book," and uh, he actually, his motivation was coming from, I think, a Course in Miracles was his, was his introduction into uh, larger reality. But he got interested in myself and what Brian said and whatever, so he kind of enlarged his ideas up, up front and uh, does his Course of Miracles stuff in kind of the last couple of chapters. But, yeah, he sent me a copy of that before he published it. It's terrific, yeah, and asked me if what he said was okay. You know, does anything I needed to change? So uh, I told him it was all just great, yeah. What did you think of it, uh, Justin? I think it's great because it's uh, it's it's uh, really accessible because of all, you know, all the – the pictures basically it makes it easy to approach the idea and he uses a lot of the examples that you're using about video games and you know just uh makes the topic accessible for someone like my 16 year old daughter who may pick it up and you know be interested in it so i thought he did a great job i was excited to come across it on amazon when i saw it i thought wow this is you know someone did this this is great yeah, yeah it's a good great. idea yeah taking the taking these ideas that are very difficult to communicate and reducing them to a comic book kind of format where there's pictures and then just a small number of words. And uh, right. he did a very good job, I thought. That's a hard thing yeah. to do, but he, he did a pretty credible job with it. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good book, so people should check it out if they're interested. Yeah, show the cover again so people will know what to, uh, 
to uh, look. Let's give the guy a little advertisement here. <laughs> so it's called The Universe is Virtual, and it's by Alexander uh, Marchand. It's M-A-R-C-H-A-N-D. And that's what the cover looks like right there. Yeah. Yeah, good thing to help the youngsters uh, kind of get into the ideas. Yeah, definitely. Well, that was great, um, Justin and Tom. I think you answered Travis's question well, and you also touched on the um, question of paranormal abilities being more understandable. I remember in some of our, our interviews when we talked on the larger consciousness, larger consciousness system that you always mentioned that this was an efficient system, this evolving system. I wonder if this kind of concept that's coming about with this um, the way you describe the procedural programming, I wonder if that really naturally kind of shoots down the many worlds uh, theory in the, in a way. Oh, well, yes, it does. You know, the many worlds theory is basically came about because physicists had their backs against the wall. They looked at quantum mechanics and said that, uh, you know, the, this material thing just doesn't work anymore. We have... Um, reality has to do with with uh, consciousness and choice, and because they're scientists, they they have a vested interest in predestination. Okay, because you can't have free will and free choice, you see, and still be able to calculate everything. That gets in the way. Uh, physicists would like to believe that if they had all, if they had the position, the velocity. And, you know, the characteristics of every particle in the universe from then on, just because they know how they know the physics of how all these particles inter interrelate, they could predict everything that could possibly happen or that would happen in the future. So everything's predictable. See, that doesn't leave any room for free choice or free will. You have to have a deterministic science. Science is deterministic. Tell me the initial conditions. I'll tell you the result. Right? You drop the ball from the tower, I'll tell you when it hits the ground. I'll tell you how fast it's going. I will predict the future based on knowing the present and all the initial conditions, like how fast was that ball moving when, it, when, you, know, when you let it go or that sort of thing. How fast were you moving when you let it go? So that's the way science works. It wants to be deterministic. It computes answers given the data. And the fact that, well, okay, I know the beginning, but... It doesn't necessarily have to end up that way because you know somebody could make a choice and change everything. Then that kind of gets in their way and and says that there's other forces involved besides the natural material forces. Oh no, you see, <laughs> that's that's a problem. You know, who is that other thing? That's consciousness. You know, is it God playing with the you know, his pet people? You know, what is that? But anyway, it goes places that scientists don't want to go. So they need to be deterministic, yet they realized that choice had measurement, had something to do with what's created in the world. So with that back against that wall, between quantum mechanics and being deterministic, because quantum mechanics isn't deterministic, it's probabilistic. Well, they only had one way out, and that is that every time something changes here and a choice is made, a new universe gets created. That's the many worlds theory. Okay, so something happens here, and there's that universe in which that happened, and another universe where that didn't happen. Right? I raise my right hand, and there's some universe where I didn't raise my right hand. So every time anything happens, another whole universe has to be generated. Now, talk about the opposite of being efficient. That is inefficient, you know, to a degree that's, you know, insane to the 10th power you know that is just silly so every time an electron flips from spin up to spin down a whole new universe now let's count the number of electrons we have here in this universe and see that every one of them flips a spin we get a whole new universe you see where that goes it doesn't go anywhere very reasonable so though that is theoretically possible that we have many worlds and you, you hear that called parallel universes Though that's theoretically possible, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And it totally fails the Occam's razor of, you know, the, the, the most, uh, most likely fundamental 
uh, solution is the one that is most elegant and simplest. And, uh, of course, creating universes by the gazillion, you know, every second is not exactly uh, simple and elegant. That's a brute force approach. But if you're a physicist and you, your reality must be deterministic, because that's the way physicists think, and, you know, the quantum mechanics says that choice has effect on what uh, gets materialized here or what our reality has, has to do with the choices that we make then you're up against the wall. That's the only way out is a multi, you know, is multiple universes. And, uh, yes, that's a, that's a, uh, a very, uh, impractical way to solve a problem when a virtual reality can solve it with, you know, like I say, four guys and a couple of desktops, right? The whole universe, you know, quintillions of planets, you say it's just efficient. Now, if every if those guys every time something in their in their world changed, they had to create another whole game. You know, or that would be ridiculous. It just doesn't work. So the many worlds theory, though theoretically valid, it's practically um, just doesn't make any sense. It's a it's a, a, a tremendous waste of universes, you know, computing power and everything else. To create all these universes just because some minor thing happened but they're stuck because if they say well let's say that it's not for every minor thing it's only for major things that we have to make a whole you know universe then you have the question oh who decides what's minor and what's major uh oh we're back to that pesky thing now that you know isn't deterministic and mechanical so you can't go there that's why they're forced to say everything there can't be any decider of what's important and what's not because the whole point of these many worlds is to eliminate a decider. In other words, to eliminate a consciousness with free will. So that's, that's where physics ends up because they painted themselves in a corner and the only way out is this ridiculous idea of multiple universes spawning every time something happens. That's kind of the boat you get in when you paint yourself in a corner and there's no way out. You kind of have to think up you know, these strange things and you're even forced to take them seriously because there isn't any other answer, you see, within your belief system. That's the only answer your belief system can support. So not only do you come up with something that's you know, completely ridiculous as far as its applicability, its practicality, but you have to take it seriously because it's the only thing you've got. Nothing else will, uh, you know, solve all the problems you have. Nothing else will meet all your, uh, your, your beliefs. Well, thank you, Tom. The next question from William R. is um, re Reality Rendering Engine. Uh, modern video games implement sophisticated algorithms and optimization techniques to render their virtual worlds at an interactive frame rates. Experts in the field claim that it will take us about 20 more years to get to the point where games can render visuals that are indistinguishable from reality. How is our reality rendered to our consciousness? Is the ability to visualize images innate to consciousness? Are there realities out there that look better than ours? Well, we get a data stream just like you know any other virtual reality. That's how it's rendered to us. The, you know, there is a, this is a multiplayer game. If there's a multiplayer game going on, then there has to be a central computer that's coordinating the multiplayers. You see, if we both agree on the same sorts of things, and I see you and you see me, and you know we we are sharing this reality frame, then that the fact that we're sharing means there has to be some function going on that's telling you what I'm doing and telling me what you're doing, so that we can actually interact. If it was just a single player, just one player, and then all the rest of the reality, then you could say that player was either creating it or that reality existed, you know, on its own. But with this interaction going on, then there has to be some other function that's that uh, you know sends my my words to your ears and your words to my ears, and we are uh, communicating with each other. We're interacting. So that means you have this uh, the server someplace that is sending out data streams, and when I say something, then you get that data. 
because we're interacting. And when you say something, I get that data. We can interact with each other because there's a, there's a system that's passing the data back and forth between us. So we all agree on, you know, where we live. We, we all know where Chicago is. We all know where, you know, Mexico is, and Europe, and we know where certain buildings in those places are. And if we go there, those buildings surely will be there. That's because it's a, it's a shared multiplayer game. And uh, that means that, uh, you know, it's, it, uh, it communicates with us via data stream, via an individual data stream. It also means that every individual is in their own reality. So that's, that's how that works. And it's not just that consciousness is good at coming up with images. We can. We can create data, too. We're also data and information creators. That's what we sometimes call our imagination. We can create data. And the data we create isn't any different than the data that the server sends to us. We can't tell the difference between them. Data is data. So that's the nature of consciousness, that it does make choices. It can create. It can think in terms of images and processes and feelings. So I'm not sure. Did I miss part of that question? There were several questions buried in there. I think I hit a few of them. Is anything I'm leaving out? You did. Um, you you um, addressed the ability to visualize images. Is that innate to consciousness? Um, when you say, are there realities out there then that look better than ours? Um, or that question is, are there realities out there that look better than ours? You've clearly stated that the reality out there is a shared information. Is shared information. Right. It's not an existing a reality that exists right. independently out there. Right. Now that yeah. doesn't mean yeah, it's not it's not that it's like another physical reality someplace else. Yeah. It's not it's not that way. There's another virtual reality someplace else, and that place isn't really a place, it's just in the server. Okay, so you have a server that may be hosting uh, The Sims and World of Warcraft both. No reason why one server couldn't host both those games. See, So it's not like that they both take up space someplace. They both have their own physical existence someplace. They're both just being hosted in a, in a, in a server someplace, and the server sends some people this, you know, this uh, data stream and other people a different data stream for a different reality set. And you get to log in to either game. You can log into game A or game B, and you get that data stream from A or B based on where you log into, and it's it's that kind of thing. So yeah, there are other reality frames out there. All the all the reality frames out there are virtual, just like ours is. So there's lots of virtual reality. So this computer has a whole lot of games going on at, at <laughs> once. But uh, but when you do it very efficiently, that's not such a that's not such a hard thing to do.